Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And good afternoon. We're uh, in New Haven to do the news today. And before we begin, I have something that I've been thinking about a lot this morning that I just wanted to share with you uh, and maybe even um, start a groundswell. Um, What I've been thinking about um, has to do with some remarks that were made by one of the closest advisors to President Trump, uh, Kellyanne Conway, talking to Chris Matthews uh, about the immigration bans and the the rationale for them. Um, here's what she had to say. These are nations very narrowly prescribed and also temporary. Sure. Um, I, I bet there was very little coverage. I bet, I bet it's brand new information to people that President Obama had a six-month ban on the Iraqi refugee program after two Iraqis came here to this country, mm-hmm. were radicalized, and there were the master, masterminds behind the Bowling Green massacre. Well, most t- people don't know that because it didn't get covered. Now, the reason it didn't get covered is there was no Bowling Green massacre, all right? Um, that's the reason it didn't, ha- it didn't get covered. That's one of the reasons it didn't get covered. But I think there's another reason. And I think it's because we really don't pay enough attention to people who die fictionally. So um, could I have some patriotic music, please? So what I'm suggesting is that there probably should be a vigil or a day of remembrance uh, over the coming weekend for the victims of the Bowling Green Massacre, even though it didn't happen. And, and I'd like to even maybe extend that out to victims of other fictional battles. For example, the Battle of Blackwater uh, at King's Landing, the Siege of Gondor. You know, elves died at the Siege of Gondor. And when you think about it, you know, elves supposedly live forever. I think they're immortal, right? So it's not like, you know, they had 20 good years left. I mean, when an elf dies, that's uh, presumably a bigger deal. And what about the zombies on The Walking Dead? When you think about the fact that they're zombies, so they sort of died already, and then people on The Walking Dead kill them, all right? Um, So what I'm suggesting is it's not just the massacre at Bowling Green, although that was terrible, if imaginary. But how about if we spend a little time in quiet reflection over the weekend for all kinds of people and elves and zombies who have given their lives in the course of of entertaining us and inflaming our passions. That's really all I have to say, but thank you for listening. Worship uh, as you choose over the weekend. All right, so it's time to get right into the nose. Show's over now. Show's over. Show's over. Yeah, that was good. Uh, thanks thank, for having thanks us for, on. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, so the voice you hear there is Mark Oppenheimer. Uh, he's here to do the nose. Uh, he's editor-at-large uh, for Tablet Magazine, and he's the host of the podcast Unorthodox, which is a great show about uh, um, Jewish life and Jewish issues in America, but they also feature... A um, Gentile of the Week. Uh, I, I'm a two-time Gentile of You're the Week. You're the only ever two-time Gentile of the Week. I want to go for three, too. <laughs> it's, it is Tell done. Tell me what I have to do. Who it do I have to bribe? It shall be done. Yeah. Because, um, really, if some cash has to change hands, that's fine. <laughs> uh, Lucy Gelman is here. She's a reporter for the New Haven Independent and a host at WNHH. Mercy Quay. Let me see if I can get your new job. <laughs> She's uh, handling communications now for Educators for Excellence. 
that correct? Yep, that's all right. it. Um, so uh, these are all, actually, you got, you got this configuration of the New Haven nose has appeared once before uh, together. So, um, and the chemistry was fabulous. It will be so again. So um, We singed the paint off the walls of the studio. Oh, it was just, <laughs> uh, it was electric. So um, the first thing we're going to talk about is a series um, appearing on Amazon television right now. Uh, it's called Sneaky Pete. It allegedly, theoretically, takes place in Trumbull, Connecticut and appears into Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, It features Giovanni Ribisi uh, as a con man living among uh, other con people uh, who are – well, he's a con man getting out of prison and and invading this family uh, under false pretenses. But it turns out they've all got their little secrets and cons that are running on each other too. Um, Let's hear a little bit uh, from the series. The series begins with this – uh, recalling of a child, a, t- a childhood time on a beautiful kind of farmlandish uh, countryside in Trumbull, Connecticut, which I'm also pretty sure doesn't exist, but maybe it does. Uh, so let's hear a little of that. I'm telling you, apples ain't the same anymore. I mean, I, I don't know what they did. Hey, would you shut the hell up? Nothing's the same anymore. Three years in here. I feel like I've spent every moment of that listening to this crap. Pete had the perfect summers. Pete had the perfect grandparents. All that money from the bond business, but they loved you anyways. They had the time for you until mommy tissed them out 20 years ago. They did. It's all true. And it just pisses you off because it was better than your screwed up life. Whatever that was. I know your life sucked worse than mine. At least I have people skills. You're a con man. Yes, I'm a confidence man. I give people confidence, they give me their money. You, what, you tried to rob a gun range at gunpoint? I get out of here in two days, you're not even up for parole for another two years, which means my life is currently better than yours. So I either had a better life than you, or none of that crap means nothing. Either way, just stop talking about it. So what you hear in that clip are uh, two cellmates in a prison talking. Uh, one of them is talking about the idyllic childhood he had where the apples tasted better and the grass was greener. Um, he's not getting out for a few years. The guy he's talking to, the character played by Giovanni Ribisi, is getting out like tomorrow. Um, and he decides pretty predictably for a con man to go back and, and join that family pretending to be the man who's actually still in prison. So, <clears throat> Mark Oppenheimer, it's, yeah. your, it's your fault that we watched all yeah, this. Yeah, I, you I already foisted watched it on you, right. It's, uh, so... I, I, there's a number of things I like about it. Number one, I'm I'm a sucker for a good, uh, you know, con movie and also um, gambling movie, and they often go hand in hand. And um, you know, the movie that I watch again and again and again when I can't figure out what else to watch is Rounders. So that tells you something about my taste. Um, and 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 you know, I find I like the Spanish Prisoner. I like con con movies, and this is a con series on on Amazon Prime, as we call it. Um, but it also is very interesting because it takes, as you, as that clip alluded to, Connecticut as its text, which is if you want to con your way into a better life, go attach yourself under false pretenses to a family in suburban Connecticut. The funny thing is that the idyllic Connecticut that it that it selects is part Trumbull, and then at, they segue into Bridgeport from time to time. So you know, now it's not that there aren't lovely parts of Trumbull and Bridgeport, and indeed all all cities in Connecticut have their lovely parts. It's just that you know you'd think if they if a little more research had gone in, they might have selected. New Canaan or or Bark Hampstead or who knows, right? But it's it's Trumbull and Bridgeport. And then they get it all wrong. I mean, and when they do a scene in New Haven in episode 
seven or eight, um, it's it's way tonier than New Haven. I mean, it's Cambridge basically, or mm-hmm. it's Princeton, New Jersey. It's much more, or it's Oxford, England. And so they just. Um, but but the idea is that Connecticut is this nirvana, and if you're gonna, and whereas New York City is hell, right. so it toggles between the two a lot, and I I think it's just a, a very. Um, um, it, it also maps onto, I think, a kind of nostalgia that runs through our politics as well, which is that there's there's this America where every where the apples were greener, and uh, and if you get out of hell, you can go rejoin that America. So I find it a, um, I mean, I am also just very compelled by Giovanni Ribisi. I find him very watchable. Yeah, I want to talk about Giovanni, but but mercy, I mean, that nostalgia is it's both evoked and then then dashed to the ground. Uh, I mean, there's this notion that there's this place that you can go where the grass is greener and the apples. But the minute he gets there, he's told, oh, no, that's all gone. And I do find that a kind of Trumpian message oh, yeah. that, you know, that the, the family business is just about to go under. Everybody's in one way or another screwed. Yeah. And I mean, there's also this moment where, you know, he he's in the f- old family's house and he's talking to grandma and he's like, so how's the be- uh, the the bonds and uh, the stocks and bonds business that you're going? Right? <laughs> because, I mean, he's he's assumed this this uh, idealized uh, family that his uh, cellmate has come from. And they're just like, oh, you're a 10-year-old mind, right? We're bell bonds. Right? <laughs> Different bonds. Right. And I think, I mean, it, it's it's a little bit of bait and switch. But what I like about it is this entire series is a little bit of bait and switch. Um, I, I didn't know what I was coming into. I sort of, I, I enjoy coming into uh, TV shows without learning much about, you know, the, the context, learning much about um, who created it, which we later, uh, well, well, I later found out was uh, the creator of House and um, uh, Brian Cranston. Um, and, but, you know, I, I come in and I'm just like, okay, so first scene, this is going to be about prison. Wait, no, this is not going to be about prison. This is going to be about a con man. And how long does that, like, how long can that last, right? Turns out, this is what happens if you take, I don't know, catch me if you can, and then <laughs> and spread it over two seasons. Right. And, you know, I mean, Lucia, I find with culture that I consume these days, I'm often trying to figure out what key it's in, you know, and I had a little bit of a struggle. with. This is often kind of funny. You even hear that in that first clip where the guy who's not getting out of prison tried to run a, rob a gun range at gunpoint. You know, there's a, sort of a lot of that kind of stuff. It's thrown away. It's not really landed as a joke. There is a moment uh, later on where uh, Cranston, who plays this kind of arch criminal, this uber crime lord uh, who they had been attempting to con, realizes that the long con that's been run on him is the plot of the sting. They've just taken the plot of the sting and tried to <laughs> execute it. And he, he looks at them with a kind of perplexity. And I thought that was really funny. Oh, it, uh, it was. It, it is funny. I, I mean, I think the show, Colin, I'm sorry to interrupt no, you. No, go ahead. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is really pleasant. I, I sort of said as much before um, the show, but I I wasn't super, super into it. I've seen it three episodes at this point. so mm. and, and I can see finishing the season. But to continue the musical analogy, I guess, if you will, um, I, I think this is sort of like any kind of pleasant but middling pop song that you might hear on one of the top stations. It's um, it's, it's enough to stick with. But beyond that, I wasn't really, really captivated. I should also say I'm someone who does not watch a ton of television. I don't have a, uh, a lot of time for TV, and, and usually I'll spend it on movies instead. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you implying the rest of us have nothing to do with yeah, our time? No, was, no, not at all. I, <laughs> not, I don't have a lot of time for that. No, no, not at all. TV. I am, no, um, no, and, and I do enjoy really compelling TV. I, I think I didn't find this 
it it just wasn't my my thing. Mm-hmm. And there is a way in which it kind of lands in this middle register, yep. which is it's not mm-hmm. um it's not great. You know, you're not watching greatness, right. <laughs> um, and it's not aware of its own failings, right? You're, it, there are shows that are cheesy and silly, and they know they know that they're half baked and cheesy and silly, and they kind of revel in it. This one is there is a way in which it's kind of it's kind of failed highbrow. Um, that said, the casting is astonishing. I mean, there was a when it was it was reviewed twice in the Times. The, they ran the pilot about a year ago, and then they they basically spooled out the next nine episodes a year later. And it got a review each time. And someone pointed out, you know, one thing that it really has going for it um, in is is the casting. I mean, you put Brian Cranston, and Giovanni Ribisi, and Margot Martindale, and all these great character actors together. It's at least fun to look at the writing kind of, you know. Yeah. I mean, and you know what? What I think kills it for me is that you know it should be pretty easy to sell a show if you place it in a place that's familiar, at least to you know yeah. the people from that area, right? And we're all sitting here. We're from Connecticut, and we're like, wait a second, because it's not. It you know it totally. sort of just name drops. And I think Colin, you made uh, reference to this in the emails. It's sort of just you know uh, name drops without any sort of authenticity, right? Totally. It's it's like you don't actually see any real parts of Trumbull, Bridgeport, or New Haven. Right? Right? It, it all just – you feel it, but you're not really there. It's probably filmed in Toronto. The one, right. the one part of Connecticut that it kind of gets right is a piece of Connecticut that 95% of people in Connecticut don't know. It's this part. They look tired. Studying for the exam. Oh, yeah? How's that going? It's gone. Did you know in the state of Connecticut for a pickle, to be considered a pickle, it must bounce. You're studying to become a food inspector? Taylor's going to take his detective exam again. Well, at least he's trying to accomplish something. So uh, there's one of the one of the characters uh, is this kind of overgrown kid who's a Bridgeport cop. Uh, he's the guy who's talking about studying for that exam um, in this kind of semi-dysfunctional family. So, um, you know, that sort of sounded familiar to me. I mean, I've been a reporter or journalist or whatever it is I've been in Connecticut for, well, since 1975. So there's like a lot of the stuff that you sort of, you kind of latently know. But and it turns out, I mean, there is I, I think this is all shared with all of you now. There is some basis for this, right? I mean, it, although not not on the books, right? That there's this notion somebody dug up this pickle thing and it has some reality. So what's the reality to it? The re, the reality okay. <laughs> the, reality, the reality to it goes back to the nineteen late nineteen forties, um, when in fact there were these uh pickle fiends. Uh, these guys who were were pickle, uh, they were doing making bad pickles, making and selling bad pickles, and and so the I think the question was, well, how are you going to prosecute them? And the um, commissioner of agriculture, one Fred, Frederick Holcomb, uh, said ah, yes. that, um, well, one thing is that the pickles should bounce, and I think he kind of made that up. Well, that's why Commissioner Holcomb is one of our most highly regarded <laughs> former commissioners of agriculture from the the, the mid war era. Actually, yeah. I, I I believe that I know knew his son Archie Holcomb, who also I think was either a commissioner of agriculture or something like that too. So it's like a hereditary <laughs> tyranny. Uh, well, I guess you know my point on this is really this is another one of those things that is it's approachable Connecticut, but it's not authentically Connecticut, that's right, right? right? I mean, because if you wanted it to pay, place it in some kind of you know authenticity for Connecticut, talk about hamburgers or pizza, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, or something that is you know known in Bridgeport. I yeah. can't name that right now, but the pickle thing seems like a Google search. Yeah, yeah, right. that's true. It's kind of a it's, it was a waste opportunity in that way. They could have given it. What is it they call it when wine has a sense of place? Terroir. It yeah. could have had mm-hmm. a sense of, of place, but I still Giovanni, man. 
Um, we should say Giovanni Ribisi, who he hasn't really ever had the career that I, I would have thought he should have had. I remember him from the boiler room. I remember him as Scarlett Johansson's distracted uh, husband in Lost in Translation. He has this very interesting face. He was a child actor. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this face that's not an entirely trustworthy face. He was in a great episode of The X-Files. He was in a great <laughs> arc on Friends. He was, lots of shows that Lucy never saw. He was um, – <laughs> no, he's, he's a terrific character actor. He's totally compelling. But no, he's never had like that role. He's that's... always been a supporting, right? Always, and not yeah. even like a – not even like an Oscar-winning supporting actor. That's right. right? Sort of just – I mean – Like I, Brian Cranston. Like exactly, super supporting actor. Right. right? I mean right. I, I recall him and you know, it was sort of – and I'm happy you mentioned that he has a familiar face because that's kind of what it is. I can't quite yeah. remember where I remember I this that guy dude. from. Right? Uh, for me – was that he was uh, Lyndon Johnson's aide on in Selma? Whoa! Mm-hmm. Right. For me, it said he's the older brother of Marissa Rabizi, who was in Days to Confused, <laughs> <laughs> and then nothing else ever again. And also, his twin sister is married to Beck, and he's a Scientologist. We know a lot about <laughs> we know a lot about Giovanni Rabisi at this point. Well, but yeah, I, I would say even as a supporting actor, he's not the kind of supporting actor who works all the time. That's right. Margot Martindale, who's in this as as the the mater familias of mm-hmm. this clan uh, works all the time. She that has a word, yep. mater familias. Uh, I just made it up, maybe. Um, awesome. Nice. Awesome. And, and and the potter familias, Peter Garrity. People know him from uh, probably in particular the Wire, where he's the one kind of judge who's disposed to uh, to Dominic West, uh, McNulty's uh, view of oh, crime yeah. and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But he also works. He's got about a hundred. Yeah. Uh, credits, yeah. Uh, yeah, as does Margot Martindale. A lot of these people work a lot. Right. By the way, the the, uh, the first thug they deal with is Dominic Lombardozzi, who also was in The Wire. There's a lot of people in this <laughs> thing that you know from other places you've seen them. It's good comfort kind of food. I recommend it's good comfort it, That's exactly sure. what it it's is. It's meatloaf. I, mean, yeah, I think Mercy and um, Lucy are correct that there's – it doesn't have the compellingness, say, of Breaking Bad, another right. Princeton project, where you just like had to know. What was going to happen in the next episode? You're not going to feel that way, but you you may. I mean, if you're in the show hole, pick this one up. Right, the show hole. I like that. Yeah. Show That's hole? when you yeah. don't know what to watch next. Exactly. Right. And nice. then when you do that, you should imagine that Lucy Gelman is doing something much more purposeful. <laughs> yeah. She's watching an art, a, a, a Nouvelle Vague. My yeah. God, I'm art, never going to live it down. She's reviewing Florence yeah. Foster. Yeah. yeah, you should yeah. experience a frisson of guilt. That's right. Your <laughs> middle brow tendencies. Um, all right, so we have to move on here. There's a huge event coming up this weekend, an event that unites the entire country. Um, that, of course, is the birthday of both Jonathan McNichol and Betsy Kaplan. They're two full-time producers to the show, only two actual full-time producers on this show, Jonathan McNichol and Betsy Kaplan. They have the same birthday. It's really odd. Wow. Um, there's some other event. It's called the Super Bowl. I think a lot of people watch it. <laughs> um, and, you know, Actually, let me just sort of say, in the past, what we've done almost every year, maybe every year that I've been on the air, is that on Monday we come on the air and we analyze all the commercials because the commercials, which now cost $5 million per 30 seconds. You do a one-minute ad, you're spending $10 million on a commercial. Um, So much production goes into them, so much, theoretically, so much innovation and thought goes into them that they are events in and of themselves. Um, We're not doing that this year because – I don't care about the commercials. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there just seem to be so many more things that are so much more compelling. But one thing that we did want to talk about, um, Mercy, is the, the sense anyway that this time it, we're going through a period where everything gets read the way that it was maybe put out, but then also read or decoded for all, all of the concerns that people have right yeah. now. And oddly enough, a lot of these commercials have – there's two of these major commercials have immigration themes to them, almost improbably. Oh, wait. What's the other one? I, I recognize well, Budweiser. Well, then there's this 84 Lumber thing that shows 
uh, it, it's maybe the, the biggest controversy, which is uh, this company, 84 Lumber, um, put together this ad. And I think it's kind of a multi-part story or something about this Mexican mother and daughter who mm. are trying to cross the border. And, and it was censored. Because, uh, uh, they made them take out one part of the storyboard that had them coming to a wall. And, and by the oh, sorry, yeah, no, go, well, go ahead. I was just say, by the way, I once did a column on on an ad. My, I wrote a religion column on an ad that had been produced, but then censored. And someone pointed out to me they knew it was going to be censored, and they wanted someone to do a column mm-hmm. on how the ad, like there yeah. are ads that they make or versions of sure. ads they make. Knowing that the networks won't air them because they have certain rules, they don't want anything to be too political or too controversial. But then they know what with the interwebs and all, like <laughs> you get this bounce of like, check out the version that was too hot for Fox or CBS mm. to air. So I that- mean, you know, so I'm in I'm in the field of communications now, and I am just you know, enveloped with the idea of corporate social responsibility, which is that, you know, a corporation takes on a cause, something tries to connect with their audience in some way, um, or tries to kind of uh, put their finger to the temperature of the country in some meaningful way. You see Tylenol has done that, right, with uh, you, What Matters Most campaign. And um, and uh, the one that I think really strums at the heartstrings of Americans right now is, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about this um, the one that you're mentioning here, but, you know, uh, Budweiser and Audi's commercial, right? Audi's uh, equal pay commercial that, I mean, it's very, it's very bluntly, you know, and I, you know, I think, and let me back up for a second. It's a father talking about his daughter, <laughs> right? I mean, I think if there's any better way to get to um, those who don't find themselves to be uh, you get to Oppenheimer anyway, <laughs> right? Anyway, who any any way to get to those who don't find themselves to be you know natural feminists, right? I, I think putting it, letting them see the perspective of a father who's just you know I'm I'm a regular guy, right? Yeah. And <laughs> my daughter's doing regular things, but there are real. Uh, there, there are realities that we're going to have to face, and what do I say in that moment? How do mm-hmm. I, how do I face that? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really just appreciate. I mean, it could be the you know activist in me, the community organizer in me, but I really just appreciate when corporations take on that responsibility to say, "Listen, we care about this too." Well, I, I think also. So I, I thought that the um, the Budweiser. Um, sort of Anheuser Busch commercial was really really interesting, Mercy and Mark, for a different reason. Do you want to quickly describe it for people? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so uh, this commercial opens with uh, a very beautifully shot, I guess, uh, montage of Adolphus Busch coming to the U.S. in the 1850s from Germany, and um, and you kind of go between uh, a bar where he meets, um, oh my gosh, uh, first name, and then of course. Anheuser, mm-hmm. um, and and they, they Jim, sh- Jimmy Anheuser, yeah, Marty, Marty um, Scooty, but, Anheuser. But they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they shake hands, and he um, he has kind of a schematic of a beer bottle, and then uh, how this operation is going to go down. But you go between that and seeing him on uh, sort of en route to America on a ship that uh, sort of is on these tumultuous seas, getting thrown back and forth and then uh, arriving and having people say, go home, you're not welcome here, you're not welcome here. And some people have been reading that with an immigration lens. What I think is so interesting is this is a major beer company's attempt at sort of um, rewriting or or trying to um, show that they have this, you know, compelling, very human uh, angle, I think. And and if you think about the 2015 contract that Anheuser-Busch signed with SAB Miller, like they basically are, were putting a, a ton of craft beer 
um, producers and manufacturers out of business by signing that contract. And so I think this message of everyone is welcome here, this very touching, uh, you know, intended to pull at your heartstrings sort of montage um, it, it is them trying to uh, to not say we're this major sort of soulless company. <laughs> Although, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm glad you make this point. And it certainly there's inevitably there's something behind the commercial. By the way, Mark, have you been, managed somehow to remember the name of uh, uh, Mr. Anheuser? I, I have yeah. not. Do you know what it was, Colin? <laughs> no, I was going to. I was going <laughs> to let you. So I was going to let you. Jonathan, John, the producer, put up for us. Eberhard, Eberhard. Anheuser. Oh, Eberhard. Um, so. Um, I, I always sort of balance that. Okay, everything that you say is absolutely true. Then, but here they are with ten million dollars on the line. It's a one-minute commercial. You know, they're talking to the biggest American audience that exists, the Super Bowl audience, and they do try to say something uh, about. I mean, there's even I think a line: "You well, don't look like you belong th- here." Th- this you is know. something very important about our political moment, which is um, that. You have to remember that one of the checks we have against, you know, for me as a liberal, my worst fears about the current administration is actually the marketplace, right? That is the fact that, you know, if you are um, if you are a large corporation, you still want to sell to LGBT communities, Latino communities, immigrant community, <laughs> undocumented people buy your beer, they buy your tacos, they buy your burgers, they buy your, you know, pregnancy tests, they buy your, you know, seed for farms, they buy whatever product you have, they buy it the way the rest of us buy it. And so the marketplace is in some ways a great democratizer and a check against some of my you know, worst fears. But I do want to say I agree with Lucy. I mean I think it's great if they – I mean I love the Audi ad. If I had $60,000, that would be the next car I would buy. No question. It's like if I didn't want to send one of my children to college for one year. <laughs> and your problem I, is you have too many daughters right. to <laughs> buy the car that would make you feel good about About your daughters. my daughters. But I do want to say I mean it is a far cry from the days with corporate responsibility for people like Mellon and, and you know, meant building libraries. I mean yeah. where, where's the company in New Haven? or Hartford that's actually building us swimming pools and libraries and saying we're going to give back to the city. Where that, that like almost doesn't exist anymore. No one even expects it. And that's a kind of shocking come down from where we once were. And those were bad dudes. But when they atoned, they atoned with like real public works. Yeah. I, I just – I mean first of all, one thing you have to say about the difference between marketing and democracy is you don't have to win as many hearts and minds with marketing. You can afford to lose – I mean, you know, yeah. in other words, if you're selling 20% of the toothpaste in America, you're doing great. You right, know, right. if you get 20% of the of the popular vote, you're not doing so well. So that's kind of the difference that you can you can be a little bit more segmented. But the one thing that I'll just say as we head into break that makes the Super Bowl kind of interesting is there's so much on the line. I, I was listening to Tom Ashbrook's show uh, driving down here today, and, and I was reminded of the fact that I think in 1993, In Living Color put on like their own alternative halftime show because, in fact, halftime shows weren't that interesting at that point. And, and um, the, the broadcasting network lost 22.4% of its halftime audience and didn't get it back. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's one of the reasons. The network's showing the Super Bowl. Yeah. They lost it to Fox, which had yeah. it in Living Color. Oh yeah. my God. And yeah. so the, you know, uh, that was why Michael Jackson was the uh, Super Bowl halftime act. The next year, and that you know, so yeah, I mean, the, it is sort of true that in marketing, you can lose huge segments of the audience and, and still sort of be okay, but not when you play at this level. When the commercials cost ten million dollars, they better speak to a lot of people. Yeah, and, and I also, uh, I also want to just add, you know, if Pfizer donates a playground, right? I mean, it's still Pfizer, right? I mean, there's there's a certain um, measure to this that's like. 
when it comes to the stakes that the Super Bowl has, you can either say uh, Snickers had a real bad fumble a few years ago. It was kind of a homophobic. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Colin, but there was a bit of a homophobic commercial. Um, uh, you can say something that people will remember mm-hmm. and reap the benefits of it, or you can just be another run of the mill, right? And I think organizations or corporations like Uber are finding themselves against the odds right now. And Lyft is actually in a very real way capitalizing mm-hmm. on this moment mm-hmm. where people are caring about what you as a corporation are saying to, to not a single community, which is what a library or a playground would do, but to everyone. All right. We really have to go to a break now. We actually have six topics today, which we're not going to get to. <laughs> but, uh, we'll get to at least two more after this. No matter where I go, no matter what I do, there's a demon chasing me. Commercial advertising, why won't you set me free each morning? All right, so this is a little bit of a story that's been kicking around all week. Uh, it takes place uh, nearby us. We're down in New Haven today, by the way, to do the nose with uh, Mercy Quay and um, and Lucy Gelman and Mark Oppenheimer. Um, there's an essay contest in the uh, beautiful uh, town of Westport. Uh, it's sponsored, I think, co-sponsored by the library and then something called Together Effectively Achieving Multiculturalism. That's uh, as an acronym, TEAM. Uh, and is sort of their their diversity council. Uh, it's an essay contest, and the um, instructions go like this. The focus of this fourth essay contest is the issue of white privilege, uh, which surfaced as a topic during the recent presidential election. This year's invitation states, in 1,000 words or less, des- describe how you understand the term white privilege, to what extent you think this privilege exists, to what, uh, what impact do you think it has had on your life, whatever your racial or ethnic identity, and in our society more broadly. So there's been a lot of coverage of this, and it's gotten outside Connecticut. It's uh, turning up in a lot of national publications. Um, and, and Mark, one of the things that the coverage says is that this has gotten people's uh, fur bristling up on their backs. Um, although, like, I feel like I've read the same repurposed AP story everywhere that quotes the same yeah. four people. I'm, I'm... Right. I mean, I think that um, from the, the coverage I saw seemed to be saying there was this essay contest. Then there were these racists in Westport who said we shouldn't talk about white privilege because it doesn't exist. And we know there was these racists in Westport who said that. And by the way, it's not clear that to say that makes you a racist, but that's the sort of spin that you're getting. But we know that these people exist because Twitter and comment sections on a local blog. And to me, I mean, the the, you know, I have a number of thoughts of this, but I'll just limit myself for the moment to saying, like, the only people on Twitter, as my great friend Alana Newhouse says, are journalists and racists. Uh, I would add celebrities, right? <laughs> but, like, Twitter is, is a micro, micro, microcosm of, of public commentary. Facebook is a, wor- is a million little microcosms. And the comment section, as, as Colin knows in radio, you know, there, there are listeners and then there are callers. And a lot of the callers are insane. And you get them again and again. I mean, the people of the time to figure out how to log in and then put a comment are often people with too much time on their hands who are, you know, playing Pac-Man 2 in their grandmother's basement and we just don't know that there was that Westport felt anything about this and and if if so what it was based on the reporting that we've gotten so you know it could just be that most people are just happy to have an essay contest coming out of the public library you know true i mean let's give some credit to the original ap reporter who actually i think found four living human beings okay uh, to to interview but that's not much and i think it was like 3 to 1 like there was one guy who right. kind of liked the whole thing and you know yeah, uh, he was into it. Yeah. 
And, and I don't know. I, I'm not even sure exactly what the top, I mean, I will say this, that if, if in fact there is a sense of, uh, of pushback from Westport or anybody else, it, it did make me think about this, the phrase white privilege, which is an absolutely true phrase that's based on, you know, all kinds of verities about the American human condition and, and, and everything. But I'm, I'm wondering how useful a phrase it is, you know. Um, it seems to me that, the, that for the converted people, the people who already understand this and believe in this, that it, that it's a it has its own power and it's its own it's a shorthand for a whole bunch of other things. But if you're not converted, or if you're the kind of person you know who doesn't like being told these kinds of things, there's something a little scolding about the phrase itself. I'm I'm wondering if there's a better way even to express that than white privilege. Well, I think that's the way. Just jumping in here, um, you know, it, it reminded me very much of the fact that still, I think uh, one can talk about in their social circles racism as a construct and have very productive discussions. But the moment that one and and is, this is especially true in journalism and kind of the question about terms that you choose to use or not to use, the moment that someone uses the term racist uh, to describe a person, the person is immediately up in arms even if, in fact, the actions that they have been doing are, are associated with racism, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and so I think white privilege kind of follows in those footsteps. And sometimes if people are saddled with the term, Colin, I think folks don't always know what to do with it. I've been thinking a lot about Lydia Diamond's Smart People, which will be at Long Wharf Theater next month and, and into April. And, um, and it takes four sort of very smart Harvard-educated uh, Two, two professors, an actress, and a, a doctor, um, all of whom can't talk about race. Mm. So there, there are four different races. Two of them work on uh, race as a kind of as a construct, um, and, and yet they are completely unable to speak candidly about race when they get together. And I, I think that's one of the things we're dealing with here. Yeah. For me, I mean, I guess to your point, um, I, I was having a conversation with a friend who, you know, when she was asking, OK, well, why does why is saying all lives matter not good? Right. And I said, well, it's because it's the erasure of blackness disguised as inclusion. Right. And then she goes, that is thick. That language is <laughs> thick and you're not going to reach anyone with that kind of language. And sort of I, at that point, I started to kind of pull in and think. The entire language around race is really thick and derives from academics, right? So we, we sit down and we ponder the theories of life and, you know, how can we how can we relate and, 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 and you know, culture and all this. But, but that happens in spheres of of, of academics and in, in college dorms where people are trying to be a little bit more highbrow. So the Lucy Gelmans of the world, right? But for the, uh, I'll say Mercy Quays of the world, so that I'm not picking on anyone else in the room. For the Mercy Quays of the world, it's, 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 it's a lot harder. Um, you, your fragility sort of starts to get roused up when you hear things like that, that, that seem targeting like the phrase white privilege or racist. Yeah. For example, with white privilege, white privilege was initially connected um, in some of the early sociological writing about it to a phrase that I like better, the invisible backpack. Do you know this uh -huh. phrase? <clears throat> like the so the invisible backpack is this notion, uh, for those of you listening who don't know it, that if you're white moving through America, even if you're not necessarily all that wealthy or anything like that, you have this invisible backpack full of guides and tools uh, and and locating devices and it's it's all this stuff that you have that just goes with being white and it's there in your invisible backpack and it's hard to understand and it's an LL Bean backpack and it's an LL Bean backpack <laughs> by the way um, maybe a Jansport or right. a Patagonia well, the LL Bean has got but, the 
getting it's getting very complicated. Yeah, yeah, anyway, but, yeah. Um, yeah. With New Balance and Ella Bean, both it's like, what am I going to wear anymore? Exactly. Now that they're both brands of the right. It's like that's all white forty two year olds have got and. <laughs> Taking that from us? I mean, I think invisible backpacks, it's, it feels less chiding somehow. If I may take off my invisible dribbles. backpack for a moment and take a tool out of it. Um, you know, to me, a lot of the pro- – right, so I would say two th- to Lucy, to your point earlier, one reason I think journalists should hesitate to call anyone a racist – um, and, and should one way we should think about our language is we don't know people's intentions. Mm-hmm. And I do think that um, a lot of people feel that if you name them X, Y, or Z, what you're saying is a, you're saying something about their mental state. And we can be more precise in describing what they did or what, or, or what a system does w- without naming intentionality because I, I, I barely know my own intentionality. And to me, that's, that's a respect we pay to all the people we write about, be they black, white, rich, poor, et cetera. It's just like we have to acknowledge our own limitations about knowing their their, their their mindset, mm-hmm. but but I would also say um, about you know, going to the invisible backpack. I mean, to, Mercy, your point about about how we talk about this stuff. I'd rather talk about it the way my dad, who you know sued people for racial discrimination, talked about it, which is like the white privileges they get jobs easier. You know, I mean, if you can't tie it to something material, if right. I may sound like a Bernie Sanders voter for a moment, if you can't tie it to something material, which is the loss of a job, I'm not saying it's not real, but I'm saying mm-hmm. we have a lot of work we can do to build empathy by telling people what's the stuff. That white people get because they're white without talk, without lapsing into or, or wafting into ethereal language. We can talk about, well, they get paid more and they get jobs easier. And they and if we keep it in that realm, then a lot of people can say, yeah, OK, I see that. So I, I would agree with you that the kind of the language matters a lot. Yeah. I mean, and I also think that the brand of uh, race, racist, right, it seems terminal, right? I am either fully a racist or I'm not. And that, that we we don't allow a, a gray area or actually, you know, the way we think about it is that there's no gray area in between you are either a racist or you're not, as opposed to, uh, for instance, I heard someone uh, describe it as alcoholism, right? You're not an alcoholic because, uh, or I'm sorry, every, every morning you wake up and you decide not to drink right mm-hmm. just the same way as every morning you are you wake up with these preconceived um either notions or you know um prejudices that just come with being an american sometimes or whatever nationality you uh prescribe to but you're not not racist because you're not being racist in the moment but you're not or uh i'm, I'm screwing this up <laughs> you, you, you decide to in every moment to not be racist you know, we have to pause there for a second, not uh, for a break, but because every morning uh, Donald Trump wakes up and presumably says, you know, today I'm not going to just talk about myself all day long. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about other things. I'm going to talk about important things. I'm not going to talk about things that seem uh, petty uh, aspects of my own self-aggrandizing character. And at the National Prayer Breakfast, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, the National Prayer Breakfast, here's how that worked. We had tremendous success on The Apprentice. And... When I ran for president, I had to leave the show. That's when I knew for sure I was doing it. And they hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And we know how that turned out. The ratings went right down the tubes. It's been a total disaster. And Mark will never, ever bet against Trump again. And I want to just pray for Arnold, if we can, for those ratings, okay? (laughs) All right. Uh, two of you here have been through either bar or bat mitzvahs, uh, presumably. <laughs> I'm not really familiar have, with that prayer. I have not, in fact. You've not been? You've I never, wrote a book bar- about him, but I didn't have one. Really? I just had to set the record straight there. Yeah. That you can turn, and nor is it required. You're a full no, Jew, no. even if you've never done it. So well, I was going to turn to you as the religion expert. You know, turn to uh, Lucy. I turned to Lucy. <laughs> 
So, I mean, I, look, I don't know. The National Prayer Breakfast. The National Prayer Breakfast is very not Jewish, by the way. I'm not saying they, they invite Jews, but it is, it is really goyish. Like, yeah. if you want not what's not Jewish, mayonnaise and the National Prayer Breakfast. Well, I mean, to me, the, the question isn't, you know, anything in particular about the National Prayer Breakfast, so much as this man makes no attempt to tailor his appropriateness to to any event that he's going to. In other words, he, he is... This just uh, this injection of show business ratings into the national prayer I, it just couldn't be a worse fit I would assume I yeah I I would agree completely I I think um, zero attempt zero point zero zero if you can have like negative attempt there's negative attempt there yeah I I mean it's like an anti attempt yeah it it is and at the same time I mean I part part of me felt like when I saw the clip. Um, which I think I saw shortly after reading the entire transcript of uh, Trump's um, comments. Well, well, and comments on uh, on the occasion of Black History Month, mm-hmm. um, which were also really uh, abysmal and kind of focused on the election and the media as his foes. Um, but uh, I I wasn't surprised. I I do think that um, you know it's something we can see and sort of roll our eyes at. But it it is this distraction to the fact that Steve Bannon is about to wreak havoc, or in fact already is wreaking havoc uh, on our country. But uh, that that is as political as I will get. You know, I, I, to me, the, there are two sets of questions here. One of them has to do with substance and policy, and the other one has to do with the deportment of this man. You know, and and. And I think it's important to document the fact that his deportment is just so out of sync with almost every situation in which he finds himself. I I, I mean, uh, I started tweeting every day with the new thing, whatever uh, Donald Trump did that day, and then next to it saying, this is your daily reminder that this is not normal, (laughs) right? I mean, you you go to a prayer breakfast and you're supposed to speak about piety or at least be pious to some degree, you know, humility, the good of all men, right? And and I just see his performance as just that, a performance, not a set of, you know, not a speech of any kind of performance as remember me, during the apprentice well yeah i'm 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 still better than the other guy and all his entire act is i'm still better than the other guy whatever doesn't matter what that other guy who that other guy actually is he's still better than me he wants everyone to know when when when, you go ahead it's nice that he brings the same shtick to uh you know to a largely white christian audience (laughs) that he brings to black history month though i mean i can't wait till his passover message and look he already left he already left the jews out of the holocaust oh that's true that's that's, that's as did justin trudeau by the way i mean nobody wants to talk about the holocaust as as a Jewish phenomenon, and he, you know, it's it's all it's all all of us were hurt by it, and and you know, there's politics behind that as well. But I think with Trump, it will always be his own. Uh, I mean, that is the beauty of having a narcissist as president. It's like it's he really <laughs> is an equal. He is an equal. <laughs> What? Please let us know. No, I mean, he really is an equal opportunity. You know, narcissists are always about themselves no matter who their audience is. So, so I, I, nobody here, I'm assuming, watches Game of Thrones. I know you don't at this point. No, I tried, don't. but Sid wouldn't okay. watch it with me. We saw one episode was too violent, so I have to return to it myself at some point. So as we close this segment, I just want to say there's a, a character named uh, Arya who's the one of the young girls on Game of Thrones. Uh, and she's seen her uh, family just devastated uh, and, and, you know, father's head cut off and all this stuff. And she turns into this character who, as she tries to fall asleep in whatever situation she's in, she recites the names of all the people who have hurt her, hurt her family, people whom she intends to kill as soon as she gets old enough and big enough. And I feel like I'm turning into Arya as I'm going to sleep at night. I'll say, 
you, know, you insulted the Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> you left Jews out of the Holocaust. You talked about the ratings of the national – like I have to recite all these things every day just to remind myself that, that they're not normal, that I shouldn't habituate to them. So one thing we didn't have time to talk about, I mean, possibly the biggest event of all, uh, is the declaration of Beyonce, uh, that there are uh, Beyonce twins on the way, uh, Beyonce and Z twins on the way. Uh, so let's at least uh, end the segment here with the fabulous Beyonce. I was going to enter the white privilege essay contest, but our maid didn't finish my entry in time. Darn it, Consuela! Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Margot Martindale. All of our episodes are at wnpr.org slash Colin. And starting next week, our 8 p.m. rerun moves to 9 p.m. for the next 100 days. We'll be back on Monday with a show about things that made Betsy Kaplan angry over the weekend. And now, back to Colin. In fact, we're actually thinking about renaming our Monday show just things that made Betsy Kaplan angry over the weekend. <laughs> uh, we'll call it the scramble right now. But, I mean, it's just, you know, we have to be honest about what it really is. Um, so um, it's time to endorse things. I feel as though I have. Oh, I just want to reiterate the thing that was just said there. Um, starting, I don't know what this will bother anybody, maybe nobody, but uh, we usually uh, rerun our 1 p.m. show at 8 p.m. starting next week and going for about 100 days. We're running a program called Indivisible, uh, an NPR program uh, about the current political climate in the first 100 days of the Trump presidency. That'll run at 8 p.m. Our rerun starting Monday will run at 9 p.m. Try to stay calm. Anyway, um, so time to endorse. Uh, who wants to go? Oh, Mark, you go first. I just read an extraordinary book by a journalist named David Sachs, S-A-X, called The Revenge of Analog. And it's about um, it's about how there are 50% more bookstores now than there were 10 years ago. There's about 500% more vinyl records being sold. Board games are huge. Uh, an increasing number of summer camps don't let kids bring technology. It's just about how people are actually finding profit and pleasure in returning uh, to the analog away from the digital. And um, and he makes an extremely strong case that this is not just a, a, a blip, that this is actually the, the pendulum swinging back. And I just found it a thrilling, thrilling read, The Revenge of Analog. All right. Uh, that's that's a show. We could yeah, do that. You, we could do totally. a show. Yeah. Lucy, what have you got for us? Sure, I have two really quickly. The first is Zadie Smith's most recent novel, Swing Time. Um, I I finally got a chance to sit down and read it, and it's really wonderful. It has two women uh, at its core, which I really enjoy when I'm I'm reading. Um, And the second is an exhibition at the Yale University Art Gallery. It just opened about two weeks ago. It's called Let Us March On, uh, and it's photos from Lee Friedlander's prayer, uh, the prayer pilgrimage in Washington and and Lee Friedlander. Friedlander's photos. Um, it's an amazing show. It's curated by fellow Latanya Autry, and it is really, really affecting. I've seen it twice, and I'll probably see it again. We should mention that the Yale Art Gallery also is free. Admission is yes. free. It's an amazing thing. So in the spirit of um, approachable language around uh, progressive issues, uh, I'm going to endorse Ngozi Adichie's book, uh, We Should All Be Feminists. Mm. Um, it, it's, an, it's, you know, your common person's intro to feminism. Um, I think it's a, it's approachable yet authentic. Um, and then I'll also do, um, two TV shows, uh, Chewing Gum, which is on Netflix. It is 
wildly entertaining and I have no idea why. Um, and This Is Us, if if no one's uh, made that endorsement yet, mm. This Is Us, I think it's timely. I think it's, uh, you it's know, provocative. I think it's great. Totally. Um, and then and this Sunday, if you're not completely entrenched in all that's going on with the Super Bowl, maybe you can wake up early in the morning and support Integrated Refugee for Immigrant Services, uh, Run for Refugees. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we love that organization. Chris George was on with us uh, on Monday. Um, all right. So, I, you know, I because I have to endorse every week, I, I start to run out of things at a certain point, and I'm not 100% sure that I haven't already endorsed any of these things, or all, all of these things. It's possible. So I was thinking about things that are uh, similar to um, uh, to Sneaky Pete. Um, uh, actually, I, I actually thought that Goliath, uh, which was a Billy Bob Thornton vehicle, uh, also on Amazon early on, and, and is kind of a legal thriller, was better and more gripping. And if you didn't watch it, it kind of slid under the radar. And then he got like a Best Actor Golden Globe or something, and maybe maybe that will wake people up to it. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and it has that wonderful woman whose name I'm blocking right now. Oh, is she a, no, I won't even be able to come up with it. Greta Gerwig. No, 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 no. It's it's a, she, it's a Greek name, and <laughs> she's uh, and she's she's won all kinds of Tonys and stuff like that. And you don't get to see her on uh, TV very. Olympia often. Dukakis. No, 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 no. <laughs> never mind, never. Mind. So, uh, <laughs> so there's, there's that one, and then the one that I'm not allowed to talk about, uh, which is the OA. Uh, this is on Netflix. Uh, it stars the amazing uh, Britt Marling, who's kind of a, just a fascinating figure in the world of entertainment these days. Uh, it has all kinds of um, angelic uh, and theological implications to it. It's very controversial not every I mean, not controversial in the sense that like it splits the, the audience right down the middle you either love it or you hate it i happen to be one of the people who loved it uh, i would encourage you to at least give that a try i have to fill some time uh i and, got one. You, oh yeah you, you, you mentioned it uh, so what i should have done yeah. instead of foisting crazy ex-girlfriend uh, instead of foisting sneaky pete on you was crazy ex-girlfriend has any of you watched crazy ex-girlfriend i have not but With I, Rachel heard Bloom? Snip- I heard snippets of it on so, NPR. <laughs> so this was apparently the lowest rated show of the year by some metric or other that was renewed um, and it's about this woman, this lawyer, hilariously funny. It's a musical. It's an hour long comedy musical. They did a 22 episode season, like old school. Right. And it's about a lawyer who loves New York city, but is kind of unhappy there. And she realized she's in the rat race. She's working too hard. And an old friend from West Covina, California in the San Fernando Valley happens into town and seems happy. So she drops everything and moves to like inland California, strip mall, hell in the California desert <laughs> and discover and works for a small law from there and discovers happiness and sings songs about it. And it's just thrilling. Crazy ex-girlfriend. Um, well, first of all, that was an incredible summary of like, you know, it's off the top of your head. You really kind of like, <laughs> I'm deep in, yeah, I am yeah. deep in. Yeah. Um, I will also mention, uh, I'm very late to this party, but the book uh, Euphoria by Lily King, I've just finished, uh, a beautiful novel based loosely. And, and I think, you know, not terribly, not mapped very accurately onto the life of Margaret Mead as a young woman. Uh, he's just he's just putting names up there right now. <laughs> McNichol is like, yeah. So um, I want to thank. I got one more. If we, have, oh, we don't yeah, have time. Yeah, yeah, it's real fast. Can it's, I say goodbye to my the... dog? My dog died this week. Oh, JJ. Dog died? Uh, I just want to say goodbye, JJ Diggles von Puchenstein Oppenheimer. She was my first ever dog. All right, I well, miss her. Sorry to bring everyone down. Dogs can hear radio in the afterlife. That's been sweet. I think, the president mentioned that just the other day. Um, so it's the kind of thing, anyway. <laughs> if there was a bowling green running mass- with Frederick Douglass, if there right was now. a bowling green massacre, and Frederick Douglass is still alive, then dogs can hear radio in the afterlife. Thank you, Mark Oppenheimer, Lucy Gelman, and Mercy Quay.